Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Tweaked Audio earbuds and headphones. Right now, listeners of the Other People podcast can get 33% off. Just go to tweakedaudio.com, tweakedaudio.com, and enter the offer code Other People, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. Offer code O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. Go to tweakedaudio.com, get yourself 33% off. Get yourself some earbuds, get yourself some headphones, wear these things, listen to programs like this one through those devices. There are seven styles, seven colors, mic'd versions, non-mic'd versions, great for music, great for talk, with a noise-reducing design. TweakedAudio.com. Enter the offer code other people. These are headphones. These are earbuds. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is attempting to arrest your attention. This is you overhearing me have a conversation. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, it's nice to be with you. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Adam Robinson is the guest. He's the founding editor of Publishing Genius Press, an independent press uh, currently based out of Atlanta, Georgia. He's be, uh, he's published work by a wide variety of notable writers, including Melissa Broder, Michael Kimball, and Rachel Glazer. Uh, very pleased to have Adam here. He and I will be in conversation momentarily. Not a whole lot going on. Uh, that I can think of, though I do want to tell you a story. I tweeted about this the other day from my at uh, Brad Listy account. Maybe you saw that, maybe you didn't. But uh, I was in a yoga class. I'll admit that. Is that weird to admit? I take yoga sometimes. I need to stretch. I'm middle-aged. I'm trying to stay young. I'm trying to take care of myself. So I go to yoga, and I'm there, and uh, I live in Los Angeles. So you go to a yoga class in Los Angeles, and sometimes you might see a celebrity in a yoga class. So that happens. And uh, I was in yoga... There was a celebrity, a female, everybody, you, you know who she is. I'm not going to name her name. And normally I would. Normally I wouldn't give a shit. <laughs> this is awful. This is where it starts to get really awful. But uh, the truth is that this celebrity, uh, you know, her kid goes to my kid's school. So it could get weird. You mix with, the, they're in the wild here. This is what happens. 
Not that anyone's ever going to hear this except for uh, book nerds, but you know what I'm saying? Got to consider such things, I think. I'm going to try to be discreet. So anyway, uh, I'm in this yoga class doing some yoga, stretching it out, and uh, this celebrity woman is in the class, actress, uh, and uh, in the midst of it, she sneezes. She sneezes while performing a, a yoga uh, posture. And when she does, uh, I notice that like, like seven or eight or nine people all say, uh, God bless you at the same time. Bless you. Bless you. God bless you. Which is a nice thing to do when someone sneezes. That's appropriate. Nothing wrong with that. But so anyway, uh, you know, like we get deeper into the class, like about 20 minutes later, and uh, I happen to sneeze. Big sneeze. Big manly sneeze. And uh, no one said jack shit. Not a single good bless you (laughs) when I sneezed. I didn't get anything. I noticed that. It's kind of weird, you know? So what it made me think about after the fact, as I was driving home, I'm thinking about the fact that nobody uh, blessed me when I sneezed. It was like, oh, so, you know, everyone's in yoga. Everyone knows that famous person is there. No one's kind of, no one's looking, no one's acknowledging, everyone's pretending. This is the irony of fame. You know, when you live in a town uh, with famous people moving about, uh, you sometimes have to interact with fame. And fame as I like to say, as a third-party entity. It's not even the famous person. Fame is its own thing. It's like a living organism unto itself. And the irony of what it does is that it causes civilians like uh, me and you and whoever else uh, to act. So when you see like a famous actor or a famous actress and uh, you know, you're in the grocery store, all of a sudden you're acting. Because what you're doing, if you're trying to be civil, is you're trying to pretend like you don't recognize them. You're giving a performance. I think I've mentioned this before in conversation on this show. But then there's also this weird thing where everybody secretly wants to curry the favor of the famous person. It's there. You want them to like you. It's weird. They sneeze. You're like, bless you. Bless you. You okay? I love you. But when someone else sneezes, some unfamous person, it's like, whatever. (laughs) Who cares? Tuberculosis? Whatever. Good luck, dude. Silence. Or maybe everybody was just so uh, in the moment. They were so zenned out at that point in the uh, yoga class that they did. They just didn't even notice. They just accepted my sneeze as part of the machinery of the present moment and continued with the next uh, asana. bless you bless you um nothing else what else my wife texted me this morning she was driving our daughter to school and uh was at a stoplight and a man was uh, in her words aggressively what did she say aggressively jerking off at a bus stop does that happen where you live is that normal so city living we're okay though we're in the humanity it's alright we're in the desert the weather's perfect and uh, humanity's a mess that's what's up
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. My guest today is Adam Robinson. He's a publisher. He's an indie publisher. He's an editor. He's the founding editor of an independent press. You know how that works, right? It's called Publishing Genius. I had a great time talking with him. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Here he is. This is Adam Robinson. I am in my office in my uh, beautiful home that is uh, Amy McDaniel's home where we live in Atlanta. Amy's your Amy's your wife? Uh, no, she's my uh, my girlfriend. Okay, and she has a home there. That's right. And you live with her in her home. It's like she owns this home? She owns this home. Okay. And uh, I I moved here from Baltimore about eight months ago. How are you liking it? Oh, it's beautiful. Okay, so you guys what you guys like conducted like a long distance relationship and then decided to cohabitate. Exactly. Okay, she reeled you in. Yeah, well, she you know I work for myself and I was renting and she has a job and uh, and a house, so I kind of it, it was a no brainer. Yeah, well, I love Baltimore and I miss it, but um, um, Atlanta's been it's been a very smooth transition. Cool. Yeah, like Baltimore's got like a interestingly got like a pretty big hive of writers. I feel like I know a lot of people who write and live in Baltimore. Yeah, it's it's that's true. And and Atlanta by comparison, um, it feels it feels very similar. Um, you know, there, there's there's like you know like there's a temptation when you first move to a new place to like try to find the corollary like who's the uh, who's the Atlanta Michael Kimball right um, <laughs> right and then and uh, and and you know like that's not all that it ends up not being all that satisfying and I think I'm out of that phase now okay. thankfully yeah what, what phase are you in now oh uh, um, you know. I don't know. Almost feels like growing up a little bit. Like I, I stay home a lot more. My social life is not what it was in Baltimore. Would you go out a lot in Baltimore? Yeah. I, um, you know, in Baltimore there was like a reading every week and, and I always went. Um, and then we'd always hang out afterwards. 
uh, and so it really did sort of my my social life in Baltimore really did sort of uh, circle around the literary scene. But it's good to be active socially. It's too easy, and in, in when you work in writing and publishing, to become a, a hermit. I think. Yeah, that's true. Although, uh, when when all of your social interactions are about uh, your work in literature, right, it starts to feel kind of one note. Um, so I started playing softball a few years ago, and and I added a, a new dimension to my life. What position? Or I guess well, you- I start. <laughs> I started at shortstop and then, and then it just sort of, yeah, it's just like, you know, it's co-ed softball. So you kind of move around all over the place. How do you even find a league? Usually I feel like those softball leagues are always like somehow attached to like some sort of uh, corporate office or something. It's like an outgrowth <laughs> of that. Like, how are you, I know. how are you, infil- right. how are you infiltrating? Well, you know, I, I actually like started going to church in Milwaukee for a while so I could play softball. Uh, Wait, this Mil- before- Milwaukee? No, I lived in Milwaukee uh, from 2000 till 2005, and then I moved to Baltimore and was there for nine years before moving here. Okay. And so, you, and you just joined a church just so you could get on a softball team, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was not worth it. Yeah. Um, what kind of church? It was like a mega church. Oh, really? I mean, basically, they had they had a whole league in their in their church. Are you religious? I mean, do you have a spiritual side? Uh, I have, uh, well, I, yeah, I, I suppose so. Meaning what? Like just, uh, you know, I grew up in the church, I guess to like put it in practical terms. I grew up, uh, I grew up going to church every week, three uh-huh. times a week. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, where are you from? Where, where are you from originally? Upstate New York. Okay. And then what was the denomination? Church of the Nazarene. What is? I don't know what that is. Yeah, I know it's. Uh, it was you know, um, you know, Church of Christ. Yeah, that's like that's like I want to say that's like my wife went to Pepperdine and it was like that was the school. The school was like uh, run by the Church of Christ and like they didn't allow like dancing and stuff. It was like pretty. Oh, weird. absolutely not. Yeah, no dancing. No, no, no coed. No coed. Like you can't have a boy in your room for any reason. Like that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you know this. You know this joke. Uh, why don't Why don't Christians have sex standing up? Why? it might lead into dancing <laughs> so there you go <laughs> yeah i went to i actually went to a school that you know that a, a christian school, a nazarene college as well, well which was uh, it's called olivet and it's um that's what brought me to the midwest it's in kankakee illinois it's uh about an hour south of chicago yeah and then there's like a school because with a w in illinois what's it called Wheaton? Isn't Wheaton? I don't know. Ah, uh, yeah, Wheaton, of course. What right. is that? What Wheaton is, that? is like the it's like the Harvard of Christian schools. Yeah, it's like the Harvard of no dancing. Like it, but it's also pretty hardcore in terms of like its uh, situation, right? Like boys and girls and separation and Yeah, although, you know, yeah, it's weird. So Olivet where I went um was was like a was a pretty good school for um for academics and and Wheaton was like the best Christian school for academics. And but Olivet students, I think, did not mind fucking around a little bit more. Okay. You know, like, well, at least my friends. And so a lot of my friends um, from the Midwest had friends that went to Wheaton. So I became social with the Wheaton people, even though they, you know, they lived. A, Wheaton was a couple hours from Olivet, but we would all visit. And those kids, they had all signed some sort of pact, and like they took it so seriously and it really mattered. Like, you know, they were like, I remember one time in college we went to, uh, 
um, went to Kansas, whatever that town is, the cool, the cool town in Kansas. Lawrence. Yeah, so we went to Lawrence, and we were going to smoke cigars under the bridge, and, and the, <laughs> the Wheaton kids didn't want to because they'd signed a pact. Damn. And, like, I'm sure that I signed a similar pact, but, you know, just, I don't know, maybe we, like, our our ethical standards weren't as high. Well, but, you which know, is, it's interesting. Which is, almost, which is totally here nor there, and I, I feel bad for talking about it. Well, no, but I think it's interesting because it sounds like a kind of casual disregard, whereas, like, I think in my imagination – when you're kind of involved in a um, culture like that, it feels like if there's an apostasy, it's always going to be like a really severe break and like you're going to have that like wild child thing happen, you know, like a real backlash. But it sounds like you guys were just like, we'll have some cigars, like whatever, you know. <laughs> well, this is, yeah, I mean, this was like our early experimenting with, with, with uh, breaking breaking the rules. Did you, I mean, like where are you with it now? I mean, did you break with it in a more, uh, you know, distinct yeah, way? Yeah, I definitely... You know, I, I guess I I have a my the I have a complicated relationship to it socially, and I don't I don't attend church anymore. Um, Why not? Well, part of it's laziness, part of it's not taking it seriously, and part of it's um, sort of like super saturation. You just did it. You're like, I got it. I've been in this for years. Like, what what more can I take from this? Well, yeah, I guess I guess I, re- I started to recognize like a, a distinction between what the church was telling me and like what I thought the Bible was telling me. You know, and this is sort of like no, not a not a difficult concept to grasp. Like, obviously, you could use the Bible to justify uh, um, that the homosexuality is wrong, but you can also use it to show that slavery is right. <laughs> and, and uh so that's so i was just like you know that's it for me yeah like if you're not going to tackle these subjects the church does not tackle those subjects in a in an honest way right and so i thought that's it like i i mean i would love to get involved with a progressive church i think uh and you know i just read I just, this is awesome i just read the testament by john grisham okay uh our our heat was out in the house, and so we spent a few days at Amy's parents' house. And they have an amazing library, but you know, her folks are are, are like brilliant people and so well read, and, and and constantly blows my mind. But I I decided to read the Testament by John Grisham. What's going on? Is he, I that's like, my dog. Is your dog I mean, vomiting? What's happening? Yeah, I'm sorry. That's I'm right. Not, are you okay? She doesn't normally have these problems, and I guess <laughs> I, I guess the. Her spell has passed. No, it's it's God. It's there's something. There's a holy. There's she's channeling some sort of holy impulse. Yeah. Uh, so I work from home, and she has she follows me around the house. So there's no way I could get away from her. Oh, no, it's cool. I like Annette. So, <laughs> all right. Yeah, I'm always fascinated because I had. I mean, I kind of had like a religious upbringing, and then wait, I got to finish my story about the. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Please do. So this is just a couple of weeks ago, and I'm and I read the Testament by John Grisham. It's a it's a novel about. Uh, I, I guess like a, a a lawyer who has to track down the woman who has inherited a lot of money, um, like eleven billion dollars, and she is a missionary, uh, and and she lives in the in uh, the Amazon, and she's completely uninterested in this money. But he has sort of a conversion experience talking to her. He's he's just gotten out of rehab. He's destroyed his life. He's he's a sinful man, and she opens him up to religion and he goes, <clears throat> he goes back to the United States after her visiting her in Amazon. And 
um, moves into a cottage across the street from a pastor and he starts this relationship with a pastor, you know, reluctantly at first. And then he's, and then the pastor sort of intelligently recognizes that this guy needs a project. And so we have some help him. He asks him to help uh, refurbish the church basement and they develop this relationship. And I'm like, that is amazing. I would love to have something like that. Why? Like, what is it about it? Just like, just, the friendship, uh, or the friendship, or the, the the project, and doing work like you know. There's a total. I mean, the way that the way that Christian puts it across is like you know this this broken man is finally able to have openness with another human. Yeah. Uh, and and you know he can talk about he can talk without having to feel ashamed about the things he's done wrong. Um, and the and the the pastor is a human in it. And I don't have that experience of um, of like seeing religious people as humans, you know, and, and it's always been this authority thing for me. And it's always been something that like, I have to have a, a detached relationship with, otherwise I'm going to get in trouble somehow. But it doesn't sound like you're bitter. I mean, like you don't have like maybe the bitterness that some do, including well, my me. parents are amazing, lovely people. And they are still, they're still evangelical Christians. And, um, and they've devoted their entire lives to it. And I love them. And so I have, I, I've come to a place where I don't have any hard feelings or anything. I don't think like I got a bum deal, but I have a lot of friends who, yeah, they're, they're, they text me for, for, for no reason in the middle of the night, I get a text <laughs> and it's like, listen to this bullshit that my mom was saying. To me. <laughs> well, there's a lot of bullshit, you know? <laughs> yeah. A- and you know, it's because I, I, I don't, I feel like maybe I've come to a place with my parents too, where like they've learned, my mom has learned to uh, let things go in a way that was a difficult, it was a difficult thing for us to do, but I'm 37 years old now. And, and I think that she stopped proselytizing a bit, you know, they make assumptions and uh, never underestimate the power of denial, but right. At some point your parents like let go. My parents were the same way. I mean, they gave up like way early because I mean, by the time I was like 16, I was basically done, but uh, or I had been done, and they were just finally like, "Okay, we give up." Like he's just in, insubordinate, but um, you know. But you didn't have like when it comes to like your break, it was more of like a peaceful, gradual thing. It wasn't like you were in college and like dropped acid in Lawrence and <laughs> went back and like dropped out of college or anything like that. Uh, no. Uh-uh. Okay. I never had like a. I never had a moment where I said I'm not doing this anymore. In fact, after I graduated, I started a. Uh, I started a master's in theology. Oh, wow. And I loved it. I was, you know, just studying Martin Luther, studying Paul, the apostle, and and Romans. And that stuff is revolutionary and groundbreaking and really, really important work is being done in that stuff. But I'm not an academic. Yeah, I thought it's weird. I've had this, like, I've had, like, a recurring fantasy since I was, like, in my late teens of like shaving my head and living some sort of hermetic life, like a monk or something. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, after I, so after college, I lived with a bunch of friends and we all had a big house and, um, and I can't remember, you know, my mom said like, you know, basically said that like you could shave your head and, and, you know, become a monk and work all day and think about the Bible all the time. And I was like, well, that's basically what I do now. <laughs> right. You, you mean now, like a, in, we was, did it? We did it with beer in, in a punk house, but you know it was like that was the that was the we had a we had you know uh, uh, like broad 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 
we had just like posters of uh, John Wesley quotes hanging around the house. We were serious, <laughs> serious about pursuing like a uh, like a radical Christianity. Wow. What about women? Like, was, how did women factor in? Like, was there any kind of like uh, sexual repression or anything like that that went along with it? The women were. Um, I think like like I, there wasn't. What do you, I don't. That's a sort of a weird question. Like, I mean, I just mean like, how did you like? Because I mean, friends. growing you up, you mean did like to me? Did I have sex or whatever? Or like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, 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 how did that factor in? You're were not women the... also confused about religion? <laughs> no, no, no. I meant like you know, like what your personal approach. Like, because I mean, I know that colors things. Like religion colors that sort of stuff. You know, it's a like. Did you feel like were you dating? Was that weird? Yeah, or... you know, there was never anything weird. I think that like in terms of like my my sexual. Uh, development like that was fairly normal i think that i probably feel more guilty about that sort of thing uh than than most people like you know like oh i i had sex i probably shouldn't have or whatever you know like I, i'd signed a card when i was in high school saying i wouldn't have sex before i was married <laughs> um but but you know that was not like certainly like that card wasn't anything to um keep me away from being a normal person. <laughs> well, yeah, but I think, too, like, you know, just to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit or, like, to think about it in a uh, a fuller way, like, I think there's some good in, like, having, like, a strong sense of morality attached to one's sexual behavior because I think there can be this kind of, like, uh, blasé attitude sometimes uh, ascribed to, quote-unquote, healthy sexual behavior where it's like, yeah, I have sex, I don't care, it's fine, it's healthy, I'm, you know... But then it's like, but you're never really thinking about like, oh, well, you know, do I actually care about this person? Is there any commitment? Like, is there going to be damage done? Like, I think those are actually uh, good things to think about. I totally agree. Yeah. I think that I was probably, you know, I was pretty safe in terms of like my college explorations um, compared to being at a state school or something like so even if I even if I wasn't entering into a sexual relationship with fear and trembling, it was pretty close. Yeah. I was and always, that's, I was contrast always... that with the situation in colleges and sex right now. And, and, you know, um, I, I, com I completely agree with you that it's good to have morality about it. Well, yeah, it's like a sex completely divorced from any kind of sense of commitment or whatever. I mean, I know that there is such a thing as like sex for the fun of it and casual sex, but like, I just feel like, in my experience, that's always led to like, un at least at the very least, like an unpleasant kind of awkward internal feeling. Maybe it's just me. Like it's just right. Um, anyhow, no, I agree. I remember reading a an interview with Nuno Betancourt, the guitarist from Extreme. So I was probably like <laughs> 15 years old, and and this was like in Guitar World magazine, and he talked about how if everybody followed the precepts of the Bible, and this is where I got. I think this must be. I must be thinking of this because we were just talking about how if everybody was a Christian, the world would be better. Anyway, uh, he said that like if you if you if you read the Bible and don't have sex before you're married, you're going to be a healthier person. <laughs> like right. I don't know about but, not, I don't know about not having sex before you're married. That seems like a disaster. You need a little practice. Yeah, and I can't imagine Nuno Bayancourt. Yeah, right. He's a rock star. Like he's not getting laid. <laughs> right. More than words. That was a women, oh. women swooned for more than words. That right. Was, wasn't that the song? Yeah, I certainly do not want to imagine the <laughs> members of Extreme having sex. <laughs> Extreme. What a funny name for that band. <laughs> so, what about other religions? Like, I mean, do you have like a, a more holistic interest in like matters spiritual, or is it like pretty strictly Christianity? 
Like, do you ever do you ever dabble in like Hinduism? Do you ever like? Did you? Explore? No, I mean, of course, when I was in high school, I read about Buddhism and and explored. Uh, you know, thought of myself as as a Zen person, the person who's into, you know, some sort of Zen, uh, and, and then you know, it was probably tied to Jack Kerouac. Okay, and and that never got past high school. All right, so you just it didn't resonate the same way that the Jesus did. Oh, it totally resonated, but it's not really practical for a. a 19 year old american kid to explore that without like completely changing his life right well i mean it depends i mean to what degree you explore it i mean if you're like if you're going off to india to live on an ashram that's going to be a life changer but like you can you can do some reading and some meditating or whatever like that's what i do i don't feel like it's completely changed my life i mean right well it wasn't yeah i guess maybe it wasn't as compelling as i thought it was yeah so okay so um, born and raised upstate New York, religious upbringing, religious schooling, um, but like a happy childhood. Yes, I had an extremely happy childhood. And your parents were like what? Were they uh, like missionaries? Like what do they do? For no, no, um, they they were both uh, public school teachers. Um, my mom, my mom. When uh, so my, I have two older brothers, and and I guess when. Uh, when they were born, they she stopped teaching, and then she went back to teaching after I was in after I got to high school or something. Okay, she taught home ec, and my dad taught science. All right, so the child of academia or child of academics. That often, well, yeah, I feel like that well, often yields writers. I feel like you know writers with writers who have or parents who uh, you know work as teachers right. often produce thoughtful children. They'd be happy to. To take the credit. <laughs> um, and but then you said you have brothers? Uh-huh. Yep. I have two brothers. Um, one of them still lives in upstate New York in Ithaca, and the other lives in nearby Baltimore. And they both have two kids, boy and a girl. Okay. So just a good, like, wholesome upbringing. Yeah, it pretty much doesn't get more wholesome. All right. And then how did you, and then, like, what, what point did you start to break towards literature? I mean, it sounds like you were reading, if you were reading Kerouac in high school, you had the bug early. Yeah. Two things, I guess. Uh, one, it was in ninth grade. I remember writing a story. Well, I had the bug earlier, so three things. In fifth grade, I made a, I made a zine or whatever, a, a comic book. No, I don't know. It was like my version of of Mad Magazine, and I think we called it Split instead of Cracked. Okay, yeah. So that was fifth grade. In ninth grade, I wrote a story that really like wowed the teacher. You know, this is the. I guess this is probably a pretty standard story about writers. So, in, and then in high school, I got put into the fast track or the AP classes for English. And then, like, uh, um, in 10th grade, I didn't, I didn't have any friends to, to hang out with in the cafeteria. This is a very, very sad story. Okay. Were you, were you, were it's you an exclusive? Were you, were you, I, I don't think you, I've ever. Were you a nerd in high school? I wasn't a nerd. I just didn't have any friends. Why not? Um, I don't. Well, all my friends, <laughs> all my friends were from camp, the, like the church camp. They, like every summer, have you read Gabe Durham's book Fun Camp? No. That that was uh like that that is Christian church camp for me to a T. So wait, what's, uh, what, what was your school like? Was your school a religious school or was it just a public school? So I went to uh, public high school for three years, and for, uh, for my for my last year, I graduated from. Uh, a Christian high school that one of my friends from church camp went to. So okay. it was like 
45 minutes away. My mom got a job teaching there so I could attend. And, uh, and it was an amazing experience. I graduated from a class of 50 after, uh, you know, being in public school where my class was like 450. Okay. So and, wait, so wait, did you feel like because of your, uh, like deep religious upbringing or whatever, did that alienate you from maybe more secular, the more secular school environment and your classmates? Like, was that it? Did we just coming at life from a different vector? I mean, that makes sense, and I could say that, but I don't think that's the case. My parents didn't want me to be a weirdo, and, and they, they wanted me to fit in. They always wanted me to join uh, the theater group, theater club or whatever, uh, and they wanted me to get involved. They saw that I wasn't and encouraged me to to, to do it. Um, I was just – I was just – I don't know. I got hit extra hard by um, – shyness or not shyness and then i would of course tell people i was shy and they're like you're not shy because <laughs> i was a party animal but it, not at school it, again like at church i went that's why i went to church three times a week because i had friends there okay uh, and and it was just a comfortable environment for me school was not a comfortable environment did you, um, did you get good grades and stuff i had bad zits had bad zits. I think that's what did it. Okay. Yeah, that's tough. no. I I got bad grades, man. I I oh, I was an, I'm just I I regret it. I wish I could. I wish I could understand that that school matters, even if you don't think it does. Yeah, I mean, I like I think a lot of people have that. Like looking back, like wish I would have taken better advantage of my educational opportunities. Not so much that like I wish I could do, like you know, complicated math, but just because. What else did I have to do? Right, I was going to take advantage <laughs> of the time. Like, think of all the books I could have like leisurely read, like on the quad when I was. Like... I'll never know if I'm an underachiever or if I'm just really dumb because I got bad grades. But you know that 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 year in tenth grade when I didn't have anybody, like the two friends that I had didn't happen to have cafe, have lunch at the same time as me. Yeah. So I would like go to the library every day, and I did what you were just going to say about reading in the quad or whatever. I did. I just read everything. Yeah, I, I peaked. I peaked. Uh, I peaked academically like between sixth and ninth grade. <laughs> then after that, it was all downhill. <laughs> yeah, important subjects that you're learning then too. I think that they probably don't even really teach you anything. It's just like they give you time to work out your, uh, like your adolescence. I guess so. Yeah, I just I wasn't good. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't a good enough athlete. I needed like some sort of identity. So I was like, oh, I'll be a smart kid. Right. Well, I, was, I guess I I played soccer and. I sat the bench every game, and like after like the tenth game, I was just like, you know, Dad, can I quit? Yeah, <laughs> this isn't working out. Right. Um, all right. So, like, weird question, maybe, but like, what do you think happens after death? Do you have any like strong sense of that? Oh, uh, um, I know. I, I just, I have no sense of that at all. Does anybody? I, right, I there, guess some people do. Some people have like a real strong who, sense of it. Did you hear about the kid who, you know, they said he died and yeah. saw what heaven was like and then yeah, rescinded I it i don't buy that yeah he was oh yeah he rescinded it exactly it was all yeah. bullshit like like the hell is the matter with america with people with i don't know literate people the people who would read that story and be like he's six years old there's no reason to believe it in the first place <laughs> exactly it's a night yeah it's just nutty to me that uh right so I, mean, I, have, I have no beliefs on what happens after you die i i, I think that probably you know like you're I, I do think that like like we must have a spirit of some sort because sometimes I'm excited and but you know and that's all maybe like electricity and neurons and all that and then those things stop moving and that's it. 
Light goes out. Light goes out. I don't know. I, I'm I, completely okay with that. I, yeah, like, there was like, there was like what, something Christopher Hitchens said when he was sick, where he was like, you know what, this is it, and I don't want more. Like, this has been plenty. I'm grateful. You know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it is kind of indulgent for people to be like, you know what, I just had this like wild, uh, you know, cornucopia of experiences on planet Earth as like a sentient human being. And right. uh, now that this is done, uh, I would like to, uh, you know, have a uh, life eternal in cloud city with like all yeah. of my, you know, it's just like, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty needy. It's like, what, what, that wasn't enough. The rainbows and like the uh, ocean and, you know, right. So maybe that, well, I, I just, I'm always, I'm always curious. Cause I feel like, you know, when it comes to religion, I mean, isn't that sort of like the, the, con- the construct, it's like, we're trying to make us feel better about death, you know, trying to like ease our minds and. You know, there's lots of talk about the afterlife and being with Jesus or being with uh, Allah or whatever the fuck. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that's it. That's the game. But then like you like my parents are still Catholic. And, so, you know, I, I, I think they believe there, there's like a heaven. But then like one of their friends just died and uh, they were like badly shaken. And I'm like, well, wait, but aren't they going to heaven? I didn't say this because I didn't want to like needle them. But I mean, you know, there is a part of me that's like, wait, a great opportunity to like make your parents be like assholes. Yeah. Right. When they're grieving, just be like, wait, uh, she's in heaven. She's good. Right. <laughs> that's what you guys think all, yeah. all your life. But I mean, come on. That's a fair, that's kind of a fair question though. I, you know, I did hold back. I reserved, you know, I, well, I, I, my experience, somebody will die that is not born again. And my mom will be sad and say something like, it's just too bad they're in hell. God, see, that's harsh though, man. Yeah. It's so harsh. Like hell is like a fire pit with like a demon lizard, right? What is it? Yeah, it it does. Well, you know, it's a fire without a fire that burns without burning up. Jeez, man. That's gnashing, gnashing of teeth. I don't know. Like it's, uh, you know what? Like, so, um, is this, is this, is this what you expected to talk about with me? Uh, you know, no, I've listened to your show a bunch, so okay, you got it. Uh, I, you know, I, I'm not surprised. Uh, and I was like, uh, I think when I said that something about church that, got, that moved us in this direction, I was like, oh shit! You're, now you're in. And I, plus, I'm like, I'm in a garage, and it's sort of like weird in here. It's an easy place for me to like get on. You know, did you refinish your garage? No, it's like uh, it's completely unfinished and like poor, like fluorescently lit and sort of gloomy. And like it's a, you know, it's a good place. It's like I'm in a. If you can picture me, I'm sitting inside of like a box, essentially. It's poorly insulated and smells very musty. Mm-hmm. And it's just piled high with uh, all of our stuff, you know, all of boxes and shelves and whatnot. And so, but you do it because it's quieter in there? Yeah, and just it doesn't intrude. Like I can record out here without having like to have my entire house quiet so my wife and daughter don't have to like exit every time, right. I, you know. Just gives right. me, it gives me, gives me my own space, but... Um, it's a good, it's a good place to, you know, uh, drift off into thoughts of the afterlife. <laughs> I see <laughs> when, when, uh, so who, who's, this is what I, this is what I go back to on that. Uh, when, when I am death is not, and when death is, I am not. So I never, I'll think about death when I'm dead, I guess. Yeah. I don't th- see my, my current state. I don't think there's any th- such thing as death or birth. I think there's only continuation. I think that uh, I'm very Buddhist on this. I think that like that makes the most sense to me. That it's just uh, it's a it's illusory. Uh, it's hard to you know. It's really hard to verbalize. That's what's so fucked up about it because it's sort of simple to understand conceptually, but then the fact that it's hard for me to verbalize it in a way that seems intelligent makes me question whether I actually grasp it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I guess so. It feels Jungian in the sense that like 
like you can't think it in, with your own consciousness, but there's like a cosmic unconsciousness that it makes sense to you in. Well, there's just no, I mean, there's no, everything's a composite. So like what I think of as me is just like an amalgam of all this different stuff and like this body and this name and all this stuff. It's right. that, that's just sort of like, you know, uh, conventional reality, but ultimately I'm connected to everything else. Like everything's sure. interconnected and, um, you know, I'm a continuation of my parents. I'm made of their actual body stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when they pass away, they'll still be alive in me just as my ancestors are still alive in me, just as my daughter carries me with her and I with, you know, like the, the whole thing, it's just like this interconnectedness. And so, um, I think death is just a returning, um, you know, and, and a continuation in some form. Like you don't, you can't turn nothing into something and you can't turn something into nothing. That's the first law of thermodynamics. So you can't take something and turn it into nothing. And you can't take nothing and turn it into something. Like people don't come from nothing. They're made of body stuff. They're continuations. I don't know. Does that make any sense? <laughs> I think it makes sense. It's like, it's just, it's like we've kind of built our, all of our systems on this notion of consciousness and like the cogito and uh, continental philosophy. It's like, I, th- I think, therefore I am. And you're the one thinking all that stuff. That's and you will at one point not think that stuff because you'll be dead. Right. But there will still be stardust that was what comprised your body. And it will, you know, become part of the couch that then becomes part of uh, a landfill, a <laughs> landfill, which becomes part of a vegetable that somebody 200 years from now eats. Correct. And uh, and and I think you live on through your actions. Like, that's where I think, like, you know, uh, you really like the. Uh, the continuation really manifests like your, your actions have like a deep effect. Like even the smallest action can have a deep effect that ripples forward, which is why it's like important to be careful about how you behave. But you know, that's what I tend to think about when I think about, uh, you know, my continuation of self, you live on to yeah. what you do. Do you think about this stuff? A ton. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, I think that's like my, you know, it's like my secret life. I'm very, should, very deep into should... it. Do you go to church? You should start going to church, man. That's what the uh, people there love that stuff. No, I mean, I'm not, I have no interest. I'm, <laughs> I'm totally, I'm totally not, you know, I, if I did, I would maybe like, I don't know. I have no interest in it, but I'm, I like to read about it and I like to uh, meditate. Um, those two things. But I'm not like, I, I have very strong reservations about, like, it's, what is it? I don't want to be a part of a club that would have me as a member. Like, that sort of impulse kind of uh, feeds Oh, yeah. Me, you know, but. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows down the road, you know? Um, but it's definitely something I'm f- fascinated with or have gotten more serious. I think I got more serious about it. Like, I was serious about it when I was, like, in my early 20s. I had, like, the same kind of Kerouacian entree mm-hmm. into thinking about stuff. And it was also maybe a reaction against my Catholic upbringing, which was very dissatisfying to me. Uh, and then, you know, and then I think when, like, I used to make this joke where, like, you know, if you ever saw me, like, reading about Buddhism or any anything religious, like, I was obviously in the middle of, like, a shitstorm or some sort of life crisis. Um, and so then gradually that started happening more frequently as my life got more and more consistently shitty. Right. Oh, no. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, no, I kid. But, you know, I guess <laughs> I think as you get older, the crisis sort of heightens in a way. Um, you know, I use the word crisis loosely, but... You know, well, you just real you recognize it's not really gonna. It's not like you're gonna get past it. 
Yeah, I mean, it's well, it's just like what to do with this suffering, how best to live. What's uh, what do I want my life to be? How do I want to treat people? What There's I... nothing else to look forward to. Yeah, and it's like, well, I have a kid. Like, what am I going to tell this child? How best do I guide this child? How do I be a good husband? Like, these are questions that like I grapple with, and like I'm not necessarily interested in um, any kind of spiritual pursuit in the context of. Um, what to believe, uh, or, you know, or that's very secondary. I'm much more interested in like what to do. Like, what do I do? You know, how do I, how do I do it? You know? Well, uh, yeah, I got nothing. You have nothing to add. Nothing to add. <laughs> I think we've, yeah, we've killed that topic. So let's talk about publishing genius. Oh, okay. How did that, how did you get to that point? I mean, you get, uh, so, you're, you're getting your master's in theology was like as far as we got. And then, right. Okay. So cool. Um, so I, I continued making comic books and zines and stuff through after fifth grade, uh, and through college, not, not like, not, I don't, <laughs> not religiously. Like I didn't, I, I, I sometimes would go a year without doing anything like that. And then I would make three or four zines in a year and I would, photocopy them and put them at the bus stop or whatever anyway the, um then i i i remember in 2000 1999 2000 i i got a geocity site uh and it's called the kankakee review because i think i was still in kankakee at the time and, and i started like an online journal called the kankakee review um and that was my first sort of paying attention to like what the professional literature world is uh and it failed of course you got to have, you have, have, have to have an early noble failure. Yeah. You know, I re well, so I, I remember like I tried to uh, have a writing contest and I would, it was free. It wasn't like I was trying to like, uh, it wasn't like I was trying to um, raise money for the press or something. It was just like, someone please pay attention to this work that I'm doing. And, and the, you know, I was basically publishing stories by my friends, uh, uh, cool stories. You know, they're all also English majors, but they, um, uh, but I wanted to, you know, get some readership. And I said, so, you know, this short story contest, the winner gets a hundred dollars. The only rule is that I have to get at least seven submissions. <laughs> I think I got like three submissions and then that was it. Uh, so I, but I stayed interested in it and I, I, I kind of, this was, we're now at like 2001, 2002 and I'm focused on other art projects and, um, theater stuff and, um, I also was interviewing, you know, just kind of like talking to people about their public, <clears throat> their publishing projects, you know, poets that had books and publishers that were making books and figuring out like what I could do. And, um, then when I moved to Baltimore, I just kind of randomly started an MFA program where we were assigned a project to conceptualize an unusual format for a journal. So I, um, wait, what MFA program was this? This is university of Baltimore. Oh, okay. So you got in there. I got in there. I was basically walking down the street there having like, like a open house and they waived the, uh, application fee if you came in. And so I went in and I applied and my, my job I had a very good job at the time. And they said they would pay my tuition. Oh, wow. So, so everything just kind of felt, fell together. And I, so I started this program, University of Baltimore, which is called the Cre MFA in creative writing and publishing arts. 
because it's focused on publishing as much as it is on creative writing. So how perfect is that? Um, very perfect. And so when I had this assignment to create an unusual journal, that was when I did Baltimore is reads, which is this project where I solicited poems from like friends and classmates and people in my writing groups and stuff. And then I would hang them on telephone poles and put them in shopping carts. And, and then I, uh, drop, drop lifted them into Barnes and Nobles books and stuff. Okay. And, uh, and I, and this was like the first project for publishing genius. This was, uh, 2006. So I did this. So my, my journal now was just like basically broadsides on telephone poles. And this is like 2007, 2008. Now keyhole is run a journal a press run by Peter Cole, uh, who put out several books and kind of was, was uh, part of the Dezank, um, like larger umbrella and keyhole started the project doing the project with me in Nashville. And then, you know, it, it expanded. It was all, it was, you know, it was in, you know, as long as somebody was interested in doing it, all they had to do was print out these poems and hang them on poles and take a picture. And then we like uploaded them to the Flickr account. So there, so is reads, it was not just Baltimore is reads. Now it's just is reads was all over the country. And, uh, so, so publishers, you know, poets and writers wrote a nice two page article about it. Um, and so then like, publishing genius was worth looking at okay so when did you actually conceive of publishing genius when did that name occur to you when did you actually launch it on online and whatnot yeah so uh i don't know i've you know if i could go back to the day that i came up with publishing genius and tell myself that it was going to be a pain in the ass name i would i would do that (laughs) why is it why is it a pain in the ass name just because it sets the bar high well, because I always have to tell people it's transitive verb. It means that I'm in the act of publishing the genius of other people, and I am myself <laughs> not a publishing genius. All right. But, <laughs> and, hey, but if people want to assume the otherwise, you know, who are you to yeah, stop Yeah, I'll it? just apologize and blush and, and, and bashful, be bashful. But, you know, it's, you know it's, sometimes I like the name because it's, you know, it's not like, like Semaphore River Press. Well, no, but it's like, and then there's that big thing, Rap Genius now, which maybe they stole. Did they steal their name from you? I want to sell them Publishing Genius. Yeah, add it to their like, uh, add it to their portfolio. Right, they can have it for one hundred seventy-five thousand dollars. That's the number I came up with. Oh, it is. How did you come up with that? Just based on how many books you you've got going in your catalog? <laughs> no, I think it was like that. It's like there's an emotional value, and then there's also like how much work it would take me to in into like rebranding like how much work it would take like a a good company my size to rebrand would be a lot more than how much it would take me to rebrand so i'm I'm going with that number okay and so you launch this thing and you're thinking to yourself i'm gonna i'm gonna start a publishing imprint and it's gonna make money and this is gonna be my business and how i'm gonna make my my living absolutely not i had been talking to people about how they did it and uh of course learning that that's not the reality um and then my friend um Stephanie Barber had a chat book made and um, she received them and they were beautiful. It was just a chat book called Poems. It was from Bronze Skull Press. And this is like 2007. I'm like, well, what am I pulling my hair out trying to figure out how to do long, regular, you know, regular books with this chat book totally appeals to me and it, and it will probably satisfy my creative impulse to make books. So I just started making chapbooks. I made two 
and realized that I have no talent for crafts. Like I, I couldn't sew them. I couldn't. Wait, you have to sew your, you have to sew your own chapbooks. Well, it's nice when you do. Yeah. I stapled them. I ended up stapling them <laughs> uh, and they weren't beautiful products. Right. And I also learned, you know, just by like, just by jumping in with both feet now, I've, I, I doubled my, my uh, information and my understanding about what publishing is. With those chapbooks. So, I don't know. Yeah. Just somehow like, you know, just somehow you say, okay, I'm going to do it. You learn something. Well, yeah. No, there's uh, these activities, I mean, most activities, but especially like entrepreneurial activities or some big artistic undertaking, like there's only so much preparation you can do. At some point you just got to jump in and learn as you go right. and make your mistakes and, you know, right. that's right. It. Right. So I learned more in those three months than I did in the years of, of, of like general interest in research. And you found that you liked it though, even though you didn't have an aptitude for sewing chapbooks, you're like, this is my thing. I like the editorial process. I like being involved on the back yeah. end. You like the marketing and the brand building and all that kind of stuff. Well, I wasn't really thinking about it in those terms, but yes. Uh, and, and, uh, I, I, I guess I learned also that it was like really like, like fulfilling a need. Like there were a lot of writers who were really interested in, in, uh, talking to me now. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly you're like the most popular guy on the block. You got an imprint, you're publishing books, you're, you're, you're sewing, you're sewing chat books. Oh, it's so true. You should have been doing this in high school. You'd have been a, you'd have been a huge, you'd have been a rock star. Oh, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. I, I still sort of feel like high school kids would have beat me up. <laughs> Ladies, just sewing some chat books over here. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it, uh, it, like it, it was something that appealed to me. And I also learned that like, I, I, I just quickly found that you could print books for about as much as I was paying to make them myself. If I ch charged for my time or whatever, I don't know. So for the first couple of years, I would go, I'd go hang out with the guys or whatever with, at the bar and I'd spend $80 and I'd, and I'd be like, Oh man, if I did that three times or if I didn't do that three times, I could print another b book. I can right. do another book. So that's, I mean, it was very small yeah. in 2007. And where are you now? Like, where is the, how many books have you published? Um, like, is the company sustaining itself? Like, do you have anything like, any insights into how that's going? Um, it's, so I'm publishing like five books a year. I published like 40 books. Uh, it's not exactly sustaining itself, but I, the way I characterize it is like if I were, um, the guitar player in a band, I'd probably be spending as much money on guitars and effects pedals or whatever, uh, than as I would, as I do for publishing genius. And like, what's that? I mean, I guess the game for somebody who, in your shoes, who's an independent publisher, uh, running in like a small press is that, you know, it's quality over quantity. You can't publish a hundred titles a year. There's just not the manpower or the resources for that. So you're publishing a small number of titles. You're trying to be, um, good about how you curate and select. And mm -hmm. then you're hoping maybe that over time you accumulate enough of a catalog that the revenue collectively works and that maybe you, you have like a couple of titles that break out and really like, you know, uh, lift the other boats. You know what I'm saying? Rising tide lifts all right. boats. That kind of thing. Is that, is that how you sort of imagine it? Yeah. Um, hmm. I don't, that's a really good question and and i and, and that is certainly what sort of has happened over the the years you know there's there's a few titles that um what's your that best, what's, what's your like your best selling title 
my best selling title is probably hmm, I'm gonna say, you know, it's probably I'm looking at them all. It's uh probably Meat Heart, uh Melissa Broder's Meat Heart. Okay. The poetry poetry collection. It is a poetry right, right. I mean fiction, interestingly, doesn't it it Oh man. I'm just look like I have this really nice uh shelf with all the books on them and I'm like just remembering all these stories as I look at them all. <laughs> uh, like, what, like yeah, story, is, stories from the trenches when you were like going through the publication process? Right, right. Or like how well they sold or how well they didn't sell and stuff. Right. But um I was going to say that, that fiction, you know, publishing genius is kind of backwards. Fiction doesn't necessarily sell more than poetry. I always publish fiction because I think that's what's going to happen, and it and it's not always the case. Well, you know, I, I do the same thing with this podcast. Like I'll have, uh, you know, like a, a, a very well-known, best-selling, award-winning writer of novels on this show, and then I'll have like an indie poet, and the indie poet's listenership will like dwarf. Yeah, that right. that sort of stuff happens, and I think a lot yeah. of it. See, this is the thing about it is that when you're working on the periphery, or you're not within like the context of traditional media or traditional publishing, um, and a lot of what you do. Marketing-wise and otherwise, you know, when it comes to communication, is done online and via social. Like that changes the dynamic pretty significantly. So you can have like a writer uh, of fiction, for instance, who's got like this really decent sales track record or whatever, Uh uh, or at least like critical reputation, but they don't have any connectivity online. And you know, so like when you go to pick authors, like are you considering that stuff? And like, do you really get deep into the weeds in terms of how you market your authors, or is it mostly just like? Look, I'm going to put you into print. It's going to be a beautiful book, uh, professionally rendered, and then after that, it's up to you to market this thing. Or are you putting muscle into that as well? Uh, no, I definitely will uh, put muscle into that, especially for the first couple couple months, you know. And after that, then I'm already off working on the next book. But um, I'll put a lot of energy into contacting people for reviews or for some sort of any sort of attention. And I, I kind of direct all my attention to, like you said, to the online sphere because that's stuff that I can, I can share really easily. Um, and I know it gets seen and I can, I can sort of, I can, um, I can analyze the response to certain efforts and yeah. And, and, and I work very closely with the authors along every step along the way. So like that is sort of a consideration is like, is this a person I'll be able to work with? But it's not a consideration like, is this a person who has a, a significant online presence or reputation? So who do you – like how do you get submissions? People just – like are agents sending you stuff or writers contacting you directly? Are you getting deluged? Um, no. Well, so I'm open for one month a year and in that one month I got like 800 submissions. What month? Um, yeah, I think so. I, uh, maybe 500 submissions. I, I say 800 because that's what I that was the last number I said, but that could be wrong. Anyway, that's how it, it's like that's how it felt. It, it felt like 800 emotionally. I just kind of finished going through them all. Uh, I'm open in June, and I've just kind of um, gotten gotten through them all, and I'm like making like dragging my feet because I love so many of them. It was interesting, uh, you know, when I the first first couple of weeks that submissions were open, I was just getting I was getting deluged by writers who had no idea what publishing genius was and um their work was simply you know not 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 a, not a good fit uh and then i was like okay i'm going to charge five dollars a submission just so you at least look at what you're doing right 
and that was awesome. Um, yeah, people, not, because that's fair. Not just, that's fair. Come on, that's a lot of work to look through those submissions. And you're, I mean, for an indie press, I don't think that's like, I don't think that's a an unreasonable ask. Uh, I know. I, I, I always say that it's like it's what, if you had to mail your manuscript, it's what you'd pay. So yeah, exactly. Five bucks. And, and 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 it was amazing. Not just like it wasn't cool just to get uh, six hundred dollars or whatever it was that I got, uh, but it was also awesome the way that that changed people. Like people probably didn't submit, so and then people did only submit if they were appropriate, and so everything was really good. And I was like, I had a, I've had a hard time getting rid of a lot of stuff, and there's still like forty submissions in there that I'm like, you know. Any one of these would be something I'd like to work on. So wait, but is there any chance that you would just be like, you know what, I'm going to try to find some some help, and I'm going to just bust out and publish like a ton of books this year? If I had the money, I, I would love to do something like that. Why, why don't you do a Kickstarter? I did a Kickstarter. I did a Kickstarter for $10,000, and it was successful, and um, it, it was a another it's another job <laughs> i've always i've always been terrified to do a kickstarter because i don't think anyone would do it <laughs> that would be oh so, you would do well you yeah, think yeah, you, yeah. Oh, yeah i don't know man i, I don't I'd know get a, i'd get another people t-shirt yeah but then you have to mail them out that's a and pain in the ass it's it, well yeah it, your gratitude at that point is is gone and it's just this random abstract thing that happened that you got some money and and that's gone too. I mean, that, you know, ten thousand dollars does not go very far, right? Um, yeah. What can, what can you ask for? I mean, ten thousand seems like maybe like the peak of what you could realistically ask for as an indie publisher. Like, I think if you ask too high, then you're just gonna you're not gonna get your money, right? Um, I mean, a lot of people will ask for five and get forty five. That's that that's yeah. I'm gonna start. Uh, I'm gonna start a Kickstarter and ask for like. Fifty thousand? No, I'll ask. No, I don't know. I'll, I'll ask for fifty bucks, and you'll get you'll get five thousand bucks. Maybe. Or you know, I think that there's ways to do it. Like you, I think a lot of like a lot of people will do is like um, ask their 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 friends to contribute very early, so that there's a groundswell, and then people will believe in the project more. And right. it's all about manipulating expectations. But I don't think I could get enough to do anything meaningful with publishing genius. Well, there's like Eli Lilly's, the, the heir to Eli Lilly. She had that big, huge fortune that she gave to like Poetry Magazine or something or the National Poetry Foundation. Do you remember that? Yeah. Like yeah, it, was it, was, she, it was a huge endowment of like like tens of millions of dollars, was it not? Where, where is that money? Give me some of that money. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's it's. I feel like it's easy to hate the people with the money because. Um, no, I don't hate her. I love what her. What are they doing? What's yeah, that? I say I don't hate. I don't hate her. I love her. I love no, her. No, I mean people like uh, uh, resent the poetry foundation. They don't. They're not doing enough good stuff or whatever. But like, I feel like you have to. You have to have that. Uh, you have to. You know, it takes money to make money or whatever. So they're making more money with that. Well, sure. I don't. I don't begrudge them managing the money well. But it would be nice if there was some sort of like really visible, transparent giving away process that was multifaceted and energetic and whatnot. Like <laughs> I don't want to, you know, cause it's like, wait a minute, where is it? Is it, are we burying this money? Is like the, right. you, you know, did somebody buy us like, you know, just buy like a big house? Like what's going on? Like, you know, I'm not suggesting that there's anything crooked going on, but it's like, you just got like <laughs> $50 million. Like, you know, like why not create like an artist commune and, you know, start having, give some housing to some poor poets or something. Right. Right. Let's know. start a lobby. Yeah, I mean, like you could give a hundred thousand dollars to Publishing Genius, like easily, and that could like change the dynamic uh, considerably. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, what, what, let's just think about that for a second, though. Um, 
what is a hundred thousand dollars? It's not going to be enough for me for like it's to pay to pay me and to pay an editor. Like like what what are the expectations? It's kind of has to be the small press has to be a hobby for people. Yeah, and um, does anybody bust out? I mean, people do start small and then eventually grow big. Does that ever happen? Sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, like, well, look at look at Tyrant Books right now. Look at Gian and um um. Fat Possum like is is part of, or he's part of the Fat Possum Empire, and like that's the way it works. Like Regan Arthur books becoming part of, I don't know, what what are they? Is is that part of Macmillan? I don't even know. I think she just read. Didn't she just reboot? Or no, Regan Arthur. I was thinking Judith Regan. Regan Arthur. Mm. Little. I don't know, but that's what I'm saying. Like that was an imprint, or that was like a small press, and then it and then it was bought. So that would be like that. Like when I pipe dream, I pipe dream about somebody with an actual um, institution behind them with actual, like, um, so something sustainable. Jeff purchasing Jeff, publishing Jeff, What if Jeff Bezos was like, I want you, I want you. Um, I think about, yeah, I think about that all the time. I, I, I'm actually, <laughs> I'm at, for, for real pants, I'm working on an essay now about Amazon. Like, and it's, and, and uh, I've, I've started like taking notes. Yesterday morning, I sat up in bed and just started taking notes. And I took twenty five hundred words worth of notes. So wait, you in Real Pants is your new online outfit? Yeah, Amy McDaniel is the editor, and I'm the publisher, uh, and we um, kind of have a focus on literature and and on like real world stuff. What like politics and religion and? So we like we kind of like relate everything back to literature, but we 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 do have like a civics column. Um, Amber Sparks writes about politics and history through. Yeah, uh, I talked. I talked to her on this show. Uh huh. She's got some sort of. Didn't she work as like in Washington D.C. in some sort of political job? Yeah, she's got. Like, she's a. Uh, I don't know. She's like a nonprofit. Yeah, like an, an advocate. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's a good she's, person. She's she's a great person, and she writes amazing stuff. And so, and we've asked all of our contributors to uh, contribute on a regular schedule. So. Um, you pay them? Yeah, we we did. We we basically gave them a um, token saying like, you know, this is all money that was put up before we started. Just like like here's some uh, like here's 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 a, a, a token of our appreciation. Once we start selling ads, this is to signify that we will meaningfully pay you. Right. So, but we, so we don't pay. Um, you know, we're not like. Vice, we're not New Yorker. Why, why real pants? Where does that title come from? Good question. So uh, the it, it, once we kind of came up with the idea that and and committed to doing this website, we of course bandied names around, uh, and for and for a while we were like looking at uh, names related to parts of books like end papers and um, inner margin. I don't know. I can't remember them all. And we, we came upon section break. So we were going to be section break and we were pretty happy with that. And we were really happy that the, that the domain was available. So I bought it. I bought section com, And I, I, we also bought some iterations on that. And, and then, and then we were so like Amy and I were talking, we just kind of weren't too excited about it. It didn't have, it didn't have a lot of pizzazz to us. So we went back to the drawing board, spent another long time on it, and and, af- and after a day of of hashing it out, Amy had a meeting to go to. Her friend was picking her up, and we'd just been in like writer clothes, you know, like sweatpants all day. And so, 
she said, I got to go put real pants on and walked away and then came back like a second later. and was like, real pants? <laughs> that was it. That is a long, very long story for uh, <laughs> not a lot of payoff. No, but, yeah, but you know, like, it, like the thing about it is like when it comes to uh, URLs or brand names, like you just want people to remember it more than anything else. Yeah, and, and my, my feeling like from having been in bands a lot is that like after you've, after you've shown that you're sticking with it for a few months, no one cares anymore what the name is. Right. You know, my, and that, that was actually kind of pleasant for me. One of my, I guess my last band was called Sweatpants. So there's a nice overlap there. Oh, wow. But Sweatpants is a very stupid band name, especially for like a brash rock and roll band. So wait, you were, I didn't know you were a musician too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All Christians play music. <laughs> were you playing Christian rock? We, I played Christian rock in high school for sure. Whoa. My band was called U-Turn. <laughs> like, like Y-O-U? No. Yeah. no, it wasn't that bad, but it was like, you know. Like U-Turn to Jesus. That's what it meant. Is yeah, that, absolutely. Is that, it, is that what it meant? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. No, it's all right. It's all, you know, it makes <laughs> sense. You're doing Christian rock. You're into it. Right. I'm very, I was very, very, very into it. In fact, that was my first, like, that was my first uh, foray into being paid for writing was I wrote for a Christian rock uh, magazine called HM, and I would get to interview. This was after I I kind of had given up. I, I certainly was not interested in Christian rock anymore, but I'm interviewing, like, P.O.D. and uh, Further Seems Forever, like, all these relatively large bands they were huge in the Christian rock world, but and they also like in the general market. And I'm like, I love that. Wow. So what was it, what instrument did you play? Oh, I uh, played uh, guitar. And you, you sing? Pretty much the singer-songwriter thing now. Yeah. Wow. What was some of your songs? When I was in a Christian band? Yeah. One was like, sitting close by the fire, doing a line, getting higher, higher, low to the world's flow. But you don't care, just rip and tear. That one was about drugs, I guess. Oh, wow. Like, what the fuck did we know about drugs? It was like a song about some guy who was like uh, going down the tubes on drugs. Is that what it was about? Yeah. It's like, yeah, okay. But you yeah. ne- and you'd never done drugs at that point? No. Yeah, and you, have you done any drugs in your life? Yeah. Pot? I don't like drugs. Like, I don't like drugs. I don't like mysticism. I guess I'm coming through all that. But, like, it's just, like, always so boring to me to make, like, those explorations. Like, like or, like, even, like, um, astrology. I hate it. Uh-huh. People ask, like, like, are you a water sign or whatever? This doesn't mean anything. Shut up. I don't want to talk about that. Anyway, so, like, that's the way I feel about drugs, too. Like, I had I did LSD when I was in college, and like I basically just annoyed everybody. Why? Because I talked too much. Okay, about what? Like the I don't know. I can't. I don't. Remember. It was not a me. It wasn't like a memorable experience at all. Well, yeah. um, I did like uh, I smoked a lot of. A lot, I wouldn't say a lot of weed relative to like everybody else in the world, but I've smoked weed, and it's like made me. Hungry? It, it didn't do anything for me that beer doesn't do. So beer is my drug of choice. Okay. And I, and I like was trained by the best, and like I drink like an idiot, like when I drink. So it's like, it's like how many of these PBRs can I drink in the next two hours? It seems so. I've so I've like, I've curbed myself of that lately, and like I'll drink like nicer beer, obviously because I'm older, and <laughs> and like, but like, I still would drink like. You know, like an IPA, like I have to get another one really fast. I don't know what – that's just – You got just, an addictive personality? You have impulsive or anything like that? Uh, I'm impetuous. That's what my dad told me when I moved. 
one time. Okay, but it's not like you're not like day drinking alone and like peeing in your neighbor's yard and. Uh. Uh-uh. Okay. No, I mean like that's all stuff like when, when when I was younger. Right. And, and okay, like like once in a great while, my friends and I will will have a couple. We'll start drinking before. Yeah, that's uh, fine. I just mean it's, I just, it's never gotten dark. It's never been like a dark. Like, oh no, 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 not at all. Always been me. like fun loving, beer drinking kind yeah. of guy. Yeah, I've, I've. It's gotten dark in the sense that like one time, uh, one time, uh, I thought my friends thought I was going to die, okay. and like they, they put me in the bathtub and I was fine. That's dark. Did were you puking and stuff? I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was puking, yeah. but like. You got to keep in mind too; they were all a bunch of Christian kids in the. <laughs> They're like, bathtub. he had three beers. Put him, in the, <laughs> put him in the bathtub. <laughs> I'm sure. I think that I had a lot of vodka, and I know now I don't. I just don't drink vodka. Like it, it doesn't agree with me. Yeah. All right. But yeah. So you feel good, and like this is a uh, like Pub Gen is a uh, publishing genius in real pants. Like this is a, a long term project. You don't. You, this is you're going to do this for your life. I remember like three or four years ago with with publishing genius being like if I can just get to like ten years and now I'm like on I'm two years away from ten years and um it's just it's just easy. The machine works. You've built yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. You know, and and it's like become what I do for a living now. That's how I I don't make money off of publishing genius, but I make money off of publishing by like as a publishing consultant helping people self-publish or helping other presses do their business and that sort of thing. And it's all because of the experience that I learned editing with publishing genius. Oh, interesting. So you, so you, you kind of, you consult. Yeah, exactly. What kind of stuff, like if people listening are like, Oh, I want to submit to Adam. Like what kind of stuff does publishing genius publish? Do you have like a way of defining it? I look for, uh, for publishing genius. I look for, uh, stuff that I don't understand and, but I still like find myself thinking about a lot. You know, I don't understand it, but I want to, I love it, and that's what I publish. Okay, so listeners, <laughs> confuse, confuse Adam. <laughs> it says that on the about page there. It's just like we're looking for things that make us go, "What? How did that get there?" Okay, all right. Uh, yeah, that's 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 what I do. And what about real pants? Can anybody contribute to that? At this point, we're just using our regular contributors, and then people can, if people have an idea for a one-off, they can shoot it to Amy, Amy at realpants.com, okay. and. Um, and but like we're we're still figuring out what you know it's only been two months so we're we're figuring out like what our real publishing model is going to be. All right. Well, it's I exciting. wish. Yeah, and that's a lot. You got a lot going on. It's been fun talking with you, and uh, I wish you luck on all of it. And I, I thank you for uh, taking the time. That's my pleasure. Thanks for uh, having me on the show. All right, guys. That's it. That's Adam Robinson. Check out Publishing Genius Press over at uh, publishinggenius.com. They're also on Twitter, uh, where you can find them, at PubGen. That's the handle, at PubGen, P-U-B-G-E-N. PubGen. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Check out even more music. Don't forget that uh, this program has its own app. It's got an app. Did you know that? The app is free. The Other People app, the official Other People app. It's free. Go get it. It's the best way to listen You get that app on your device, whether it's an iPhone, an iPad, an Android phone, whatever the case may be, you get that app for free on your device, and then the most 50 recent episodes of this podcast will be waiting for you for free. And then from there, if you want to listen to the deep archives, you want to stream the archives, all 350-something or 40-something episodes, 
uh, just sign up for premium right there within the app. You sign up within the app. It's very cheap. It's as cheap as 75 cents a month. Do that. Support the show. Come on. Bless you. God bless you. Bless you. <laughs> it's so shitty. It really is. I'm right. It's shitty. That's what it is. It's just evidence of the shittiness of people, at least in Los Angeles. When exposed, when in the presence of like the fame thing, the fame virus. And maybe it's just human nature. We all sort of react to that shit to greater and lesser degrees. Some people don't. Maybe there are some people who just don't have that. They, they, they don't respond at all. They don't give a shit. They see everybody the same. Famous, not famous. Rich, poor. That's what I aspire to be. But like when I do this show, if I'm talking to like some like award-winning uh, decorated uh, author... Uh, you know, especially somebody who's older than me, I get a little bit more nervous. That's the truth. Maybe that's what it is. I'm probably more likely to tell them God bless you when they sneeze than I am if I'm talking to some like a uh, debut novelist from the streets of Brooklyn. <laughs> I just got, I should say God bless you to everybody or to nobody, one or the other. Bless you. Please remember that Graham Greene never learned how to drive a car and that Albert Camus won the Nobel Prize at age 44. No pressure. You're doing good. You're on your way. That's it for now. Thanks again to Adam Robinson of Publishing Genius Press. Thanks to you guys for listening. I appreciate it, and I'll be back uh, soon with another uh, episode, another, uh, another interview, another conversation, another monologue, more tales from my uh, existence here in Los Angeles, more tales of uh, celebrity sightings and bad behavior. I'm sorry I can't reveal the name of the celebrity. I feel like shit for that. Seems lame. But uh, I don't want to uh, create any havoc. Bless you. Bless you. Seriously, bless you. Fuck off. (laughs) 